Welcome to the Connect Church Podcast. Our mission at Connect Church is to help people find and follow Jesus. For more information on who we are and how we're doing just that, visit myconnectchurch.cc. Now, let's jump into this week's message from Pastor Blaine. I want to say really glad that you're here this morning, and if you're this is your first time, or maybe you're newer to church. Hope that you feel part of the family and uh, at home here. I'd love to get to know you and uh, be able to maybe share a cup of coffee with you or something, kind of share who we are and uh, hear who you are and, and uh, maybe see if, uh, if, if what God is doing here is what God is calling you to do as well. And, and I uh, hope, hope that you become a long-standing member of, uh, of the family of God uh, here with us at Connect Church. And, uh, and so each week as a church, we, uh, I say, shouldn't say we, I'll say, well, now I'm in a, now I'm in a hole. Let me start over. <clears throat> Good morning. Uh, each week we set to memory uh, a Bible verse that kind of sets uh, the tone of, of the day. And so every, every day, all week, we put that Bible verse to memory. And, uh, and today is... Uh, one that I really hope that we can not just memorize but understand. In fact, I hope that that's true every week. What I, what I try to do with these verses is to find tools that we may have, number one, that the Spirit can pull out of us throughout the week uh, as resources that we can give away and counsel or in, as encouragement. Uh, but this one is one of those that I, I want us to, to understand, not just memorize. And Mary said, my soul does magnify the Lord, and my spirit, anybody, rejoices in the God of my salvation, my Savior. And I think about this, and I want to just kind of walk through this particular verse, and it it will add to uh, the overall idea. But that the mind and the emotion, uh, it will magnify Jesus. And what I mean by, so for those of you who are here weekly, you probably get tired of this, which means that maybe we're starting to understand in in being a a trichotomist, we are both body, well, three things, body, mind, and spirit. And, And so there's three parts of us that God makes us also in a trinity that works together. And our flesh is completely corrupt and our spirit is actually dead until we're alive in Christ. And so obviously that's what Mary is experiencing. But she says that in the middle, the soul, the suke, the mind, the emotion, where we, where we desire, where we're driven, where we make choices, where we think, where we process. This is a choice that Mary is making. My soul does magnify the Lord. I'm making a conscious, intentional choice to lift Jesus Christ. My soul does magnify the Lord. And she already knows, the angel has already told her by this time, that she is going to give birth to her own Lord. And she is already magnifying her own child, knowing that he is sent from God. So in her mind, she is magnifying, making much of Jesus. And my soul, because I have elevated Jesus, I've diminished every other thought. I've eclipsed every other fear. I've exalted and lift up Jesus, and my spirit acts in joy. And joy impacts everything. Remember, we talked about it last week. Joy backfeeds. 
So where we used to get strength from the body, now we get strength from the spirit. And we know that the primary energizer of the spirit is joy. And so joy comes into the mind and joy comes into our bodies. And it's the joy of the Lord that is our strength. Notice that all three parts of who Mary is, is celebrating what God has just promised her. Her body, her mind, and her spirit. She is completely engulfed. Not in her identity as a teenager, not in her identity as a poor peasant, not in her identity as an engaged young woman. Her identity is solid in who God calls her to be. And it drowns out every other fear, every other anxiety. In that moment when everything in her life is on the line, her relationship to her future husband, her relationship to her family, her relationship to her standing in society, everything is on the line. And she's able to glorify the Lord, to magnify Him, to experience joy in that moment because joy overrides circumstances. It's interesting to me how often joy, if you go back and you look at all of, well, really the whole scripture, but how often the word joy or rejoicing is tied in with Jesus and how seldom it's associated with Christians. Think about it. Think about your own life. Think about the Christians that you know. How closely tied joy is to Jesus and how seldom associated joy is to Christians. Something is broken. When you survey the Christmas story, joy is incredibly clear. In fact, joy Jesus came so that joy could. Look at verse 26 of Luke chapter 1. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was, what? Greatly troubled. Here again, we have a, an angelic presentation. And again, you think that people like Mary are used to experiencing this. Not so. She was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid. Well, it's too late. Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Over and over there is a, a, a clear representation of prophecy in this angel's statement. In verse 34, and Mary said to the angel, how will this be? since I am committed to purity, since I am a virgin. And the angel said, answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child will be born, will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her 
whom was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Listen to this. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. And in those days, Mary arose and went with haste to the hill country, to the town of Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Can you imagine this? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. For what? For joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And in that moment, Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. I love this, and I'm, I'm going to keep reading in a second, but it's very important in a world where everybody tries to venerate Mary. Jesus is the star character here. Uh, now, Mary is worthy of blessing and honor, but remember, Mary also says, my Savior. She recognizes that she was but a simple, humble servant of the Lord. For he has looked upon the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. And he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things. Listen, this is all speaking in past tense. And she's referring to the promise that's inside of her. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate, filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. If you go back to 1 Samuel chapter 2, there you'll find another woman who is struggling. She's struggling because she also is barren. This is Hannah, who would be the soon-to-be mother of Samuel. Hannah laments and is praying to be able to, to give birth to a son. And Hannah's prayer of rejoicing is almost, well, I should say Mary's prayer here in Luke 1, is almost spot on to Hannah's in 1 Samuel chapter 2. In fact, if you will see, some of the words are exact. What young, impressionable Mary is doing here is in this moment of celebration. She hearkens back to one of her Old Testament heroes, Hannah, who did not understand what was happening to her either. And she quotes many of the things that Hannah says. These things are not impulsive. Her response came because she had been spending time in the Word. She knew the words of the promise. She knew what this proclamation of the angel meant for her life. Mary was full aware of what was going on. And so what does she do? 
She quotes from the Old Testament. Not completely. If you go back and look at 1 Samuel chapter 2, you will see a lot of similarities. Without a moment's, and a moment's notice, what Mary does is she takes her current context and places it into an Old Testament prayer that she knew God answered. It was a dark day for Israel. It was under the strain of Rome. It was a darker day for Mary, at least this day. Mary had a lot of things to look forward to. Lots of new beginnings coming for Mary. Mary was about to marry a man who could support her. She was about to marry someone that she knew was devoted to her and loved her and they would be faithful to each other. A godly man, a just man, a man of a good reputation. Those were very rare back then. And Mary wasn't marrying out of any other reason except for love. Another oddity. But Mary and Joseph were committed to each other and all of a sudden, Mary is going to have to tell her loved one, her betrothed, that she's pregnant. Now listen, that's, that maybe is not news to us because we've always heard about the virgin birth, but that story hadn't been told in Mary's day. Mary, in this moment, it's very important for us to put our, our own minds and our own emotions in the place where Mary is. Mary's a poor, engaged girl who was told that she's going to have a baby and it's going to jeopardize her personal plans for her future. She would have been filled with fear, and, and she doesn't know this yet, but that was Joseph's first go-to. He was going to put her away privately. He could have stoned her to death, but that's the kind of man that Joseph was. He was a good man. And the angel came and explained the same thing to him, and Joseph decided to make a, another decision. This isn't about Joseph. But she would have been, in this moment, filled with fear, anxiety, insecurity. But I want you to, I want you to pay attention. She was troubled. The angel said, don't fear. She was filled with questions. How could this possibly be? So her response here says a lot about who she is. The angel Gabriel, the messenger of God, always comes to deliver the message. But Mary is still scratching her head. And so she's going to track this down by going to Elizabeth's house. And when she knocks on the door and Elizabeth greets her, these things start happening. And what happens to Elizabeth? She immediately agrees with what the angel has said without Mary telling her a word. And at that moment, she had the confirmation from the angels, and she had confirmation on earth. And that's all she needed. It was going to cost her her plans for herself, her plans with Joseph. But after that statement from Elizabeth, she was, you know, as the Bible says, Elizabeth was filled with joy, which is exactly what Gabriel had told Zechariah that John the Baptist's birth would do. But Mary had a habit of driving her circumstances into the joy of the Lord. And in this moment, when she had lots of other choices, Mary result, resorted to her habit of joy. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. If I were to ask you what's the shortest verse in the Bible, I know what you would say. You'd probably say, well, you'd probably say John chapter 11. Uh, Jesus wept, right? It's a very Western thought. Jesus wept. Uh, it's not very many words. What, nine uh, letters, rather? Uh, yeah, I know. I'm from Kentucky, but I can count to ten. 
I can actually, with my shoes off, I can count to 20. What would you do if I told you that's not the shortest verse in the Bible? The shortest verse in the Bible is actually in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 16. In the Greek, there's several less letters. I'm really struggling. Uh, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 16. That verse there you'll find is a rejoice evermore. It's the same number of words. In English, obviously more letters. But in the original language, it's not so. It's interesting to me that the shortest verse in Scripture is rejoice evermore. You, know, you want to know why I think that's true? And I want you to remember it this way. It's absolutely what I'm about to say is not true. Okay, But I want you to, think, I want you to remember it this way. It's because God, of all the verses that God wanted to be portable, He wanted that one to be portable so that you could fold it up easy and put it in your pocket and always have it with you. Rejoice evermore. Wherever you are, remember it. Rejoice evermore. It's a really odd Greek phrase because the adverb actually comes before the subject, which means that the evermore comes first. We wouldn't say evermore in today's English. We would say always. So what this verse actually says in the original language is always be, and, the, and rejoicing is present tense, always be in a state of rejoicing. Never be caught not rejoicing. Because joy can become a habit. Just like grumbling and complaining is a habit. Joy becomes a habit. but you have to get into the habit. I, I, would say that, I would say that most people aren't there by nature. So we have to be there by second nature. Always be rejoicing. We talked about joy being a choice because you, you look back at God's track record in your darkness and you use God's track record to predict your future. So because God has always been faithful, it builds my faith, and I'm able to take that faith and have hope in my future. So whatever happens today, I can have hope. And what, what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians is that because of that hope, I am free to love. And that's the place we want to get to. That's the thing that matters most. But you can't just choose to love. But you can choose to have faith and you can choose to have hope and hope produces joy. And I want you to write this down. If you've got a pen and paper, I want you to write this down. So important. In fact, if you don't remember anything else, this is the thing I want you to walk away with and it is not mine. Bob Goff once said that when joy becomes your habit, love becomes the reflex. If you don't have joy, you're never going to have love. That's why love is such a deficit in our world today, even among Christians. When joy is your habit, love is your reflex. And that's what we want to find. Faith doesn't produce love. Hope doesn't necessarily produce love. But when you put those things together, they produce joy, and joy produces love. And love is what we live in in the day-to-day. -day. It's the proof that you know who Jesus is. It's the proof that you've been transformed. And there's these three, faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is 
And love flows out of when faith and hope come together. They have a child and the child is joy. And when joy is full, it produces love. Love is the proof. So I want you to remember that today. When joy becomes your nature, love becomes your second nature. And that's not an isolated command, 1 Thessalonians 5.16. It's 17 times in the book of Philippians Paul talks about, about joy. And it's interesting because Philippians is a book that Paul wrote while he was in prison. So just a few of those I wanted to bring up today. Philippians chapter 2. Even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. And you too rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. No matter what was going on in Paul's life, even if I'm a prisoner, even if I might lose my life, if I wind up being a sacrifice in order to get the gospel to you, I rejoice and I share my joy with you. I expect you to rejoice and share your joy with me. Joy becomes mutual because it's contagious when it's a habit. In chapter 3, verse 1 of Philippians, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. Chapter 4, verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say, what? Rejoice. We are commanded to rejoice. It is a choice. It is an action. But it's also a habit. We're commanded to have joy. Listen, there are no circumstance, not one circumstance that should rob you of joy. Not one. Now, I want you to hear that again. Because there's, and I know that every, there's probably, I don't know how many hundred there are excuses, exceptions to that in this very room right now. Yeah, but you don't know what my circumstance is. Doesn't matter. There is not a circumstance that should steal your joy. So let me say it this way. If there is a circumstance that steals your joy, the circumstance is not your problem. Your joy is. And joy is a choice. Your joy is a result of your trust in Jesus. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 13, it says, Keep on rejoicing. Listen to this. This is, and again, these are not just guys who I have read books. These are men who have struggled and struggled because of their faith. Keep on rejoicing, even to the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, Peter said. Rejoice in proportion to your pain. Rejoice in proportion to your frustration. Joy increases as trouble increases. Eight different times from John chapter 13 to John chapter 18, as Jesus is teaching his disciples this very, these very last times, he mentions his personal joy, full joy. Yeah, I'm about to die. I'm about to be tortured. I'm about to be betrayed. I'm about to be separated from you. Everyone is going to try to kill you. They're going to pursue you. They're going to torture you. In fact, all of you are going to die except for one of you. And I'm not going to tell you which one. But you're going to have trouble. You're going to have tribulation. 
And I tell you this, he gets to the end, so that your joy will be full. Go back to Matthew chapter 5. It doesn't matter how severe the difficulty is, it doesn't change the requirement. Verse 10, blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is what? The kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men cast insults at you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on account of me. Rejoice and be glad. It's not easy to do. If you've been betrayed, insulted, ridiculed, persecuted, had all kinds of evil been said about you falsely, Rejoice and be glad. There's a similar passage in Luke chapter 6, verse 22 and 23. It says, Blessed are you when men hate you. And the word blessed is a double portion of happiness, which is like from happy to joy. Happy are you when men hate you, ostracize you, cast insults at you, spurn your name as evil because you're associated with Christ. Listen to this, Jesus said. Be glad in that day and leap for Joy. What in the world? Jump for joy when I'm hated? Jump for joy when people are talking behind my back? Jump for joy when they're betraying me and insulting me and saying all kinds, when they're misusing me and they're taking advantage of me? Jump for joy? Listen, have you ever noticed how extreme difficulty strips away your pride? You ever noticed how humble you can get when you've been taken advantage of? How the temptation is to just kind of get away from everybody? Your self-sufficiency, your independence, your confidence, your boldness, your arrogance takes a real hit when you're not popular. When your determination... You see, struggle purifies us. Struggle makes us more like Jesus. We want our plan, we want our way, we want our dreams, and this becomes our habit. Pursuing self becomes a habit. And sometimes we can make it about God, but typically it's about me. And it becomes our habit. And we manipulate every circumstance, and when we don't get our way, we beat on the wall or beat on the door until it comes down for us. And if it doesn't, then we get angry. Something comes along and jeopardizes our plan, we buck up at it, and we go to war. But when Jesus is our habit, when our eyes are on Him, when our mind is on Him, when our heart is on Him, when we spend time in His presence... We're joyful at all times. Come what may, may it be according to your word. Because we're coming, becoming more and more like him. Because our soul is not tied to self. Our soul is tied to our Savior. That keeps us in a place of humility. And that's what Mary was able to do. She was able to shift from defense or making it about her. And she made it all about what the Lord has done and what the Lord will do. After Jesus was crucified, the women went back to the tomb to check on him. And when he's at the tomb, and the angel appeared and told them, Hey, you know, the one you're looking for is not here. He's risen. 
And, as, uh, and they said, go back and tell, you know, the brothers <clears throat> about the resurrection. And when they turned around to go, uh, Jesus was there. And, and you remember what Jesus says. Now, you may have to go back to Children's Church here to remember exactly what Jesus says because it's, it's, it's a lot of ter- translations don't use it this way anymore. But Jesus looks at him and he says, all hail. I don't know that that's what he said. Uh, what the original says is Jesus said to them, greetings. It seems like a really weird thing to say right after a resurrection. Greetings. It's something like Spock might say, you know. Greetings and salutations. Uh, the word is very interesting. It is a very good translation. But the word is the word rejoice. Think about that. The very th- first thing that Jesus said, in, in Greek, that's the way it should be translated. When, the, when, when Mary and all the, other, all the other women see Jesus, Jesus looks at him and he says, rejoice. It's the first words after the resurrection. It was so impactful that when they went back and told the brothers about it, and they all came to see Jesus, Jesus gave them the same greeting. And from then on, you know what? The early church, they moved from Shalom to when they greeted each other, you know what they said? Rejoice. When they walked down the halls of their small groups and their small little churches, they looked at each other. They didn't say, hi. They didn't say, how are you? They didn't say, how you doing? Brothers for generations would look at each other and say, rejoice. Rejoice. Can we do that? Can we just start looking at each other and instead of saying hi, just say rejoice. See, what it does is just reminds us of what, where, our, where our head should be. Instead of saying, how are you? I'm going to tell you how you should be. Rejoice. There are some people, Christians especially, that walk around just... I don't need to ask you how you are. You're miserable. And it's contagious. Shame on you. But I want to look at... Sometimes I've done this to some people, and I won't tell you who, but... Listen, I just look at... Hey, listen, it can't be that bad. (laughs) Whatever it is, it can't can't be possibly as bad as your face is showing right now. And I think, man, it shouldn't be that much of a struggle to get Christians to live in another reality. To get Christians to focus on the resurrection. To get Christians focused on the future. To get Christians to focus on what God's will is for their life instead of their own plan. And their plan may not be bad, but it may not be God. Rejoice. Have joy. Be joyful. It's a great reminder to them. It's a great reminder to us. Oh, they were living behind locked doors. They were living with the threat of death and at best, prison. Rejoice. It's the mark of true transformation. Somebody, listen, I I, I only say this because I want us to be helpful. So if somebody walks up to you and starts grumbling and complaining, if you say rejoice, it's going to come across as a rebuke. 
So if you say rejoice before they grumble and complain, they might change their attitude before they grumble and complain. You see, I'm actually trying to give a tool away. Just, just go ahead and preempt any conflict by looking at some. The first thing out of your mouth should be rejoice. Because joy is contagious. And so is grumbling and complaining. In Acts chapter 15, verse 23, Council of Jerusalem wrote a letter to the Gentile Christians that they were scratching their head about. It says, The apostles and the brethren who are elders to the brethren of Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, who are from the Gentiles, rejoice. That was the greeting. Scripture says our joy is to be great. It's to be abundant. It's to be exceeding. It's to be animated. It's to be unspeakable, full of glory. Joy that is fulfilled by the things of the world is the world's joy. But it will not, cannot produce the joy of heaven in you. It, can't, it doesn't have the power to change your perspective. In Proverbs chapter 14, verse 12, there's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end is the way of death. Hear that? There is a way that seems right, but it ends in death. You can either learn that from the book of Proverbs, or you can learn that the hard way. But there is a way that seems right to you, but it ends in death. Even in laughter, the heart may ache, and the end of joy may be grief. This is not the joy and the laughter that the Lord brings. This is the joy that's cultivated, the joy of the world, not joy to the world. When you're driven by your impulses to pursue joy, it's, it's always going to be an artificial substitute, and it always is going to produce death. But when you're driven by, let it be according to your word, there is joy. In Romans chapter 14, verse 17, it says that the kingdom of God is made up of righteousness and peace and joy in the Spirit. You see, there is a righteousness that is worldly and it's selfish. And it may be moral, but it is without the Holy Spirit and therefore it is false. There is another, peace. And it's good for temporary fixes for moments, but it doesn't last and it renders itself ineffective over time. And there is a joy of the world, but it leads to grieving and death. But there is also a righteousness that benefits the body and a peace that benefits the soul and a joy that satisfies the spirit. And they all lead to Jesus. And no circumstance of this life should be able to exist in the absence of righteousness, peace, and joy. Transforming joy isn't natural. It doesn't come natural. So our flesh is always going to be the first thing to respond. Whenever a circumstance happens, I want you to let you off the hook. Maybe you're not like me, and, and, and that's probably to your benefit. But there's always been times in my Christian life where I thought, you know what, by now a Christian shouldn't think like I think. Anybody else? Be, don't leave me alone in the room. Christians shouldn't, you know, like, like when something happens and you get like, real quick, uh, you're like, man... Christians should not respond like that. Well, that's how a Christian responds. A Christian responds by saying a Christian shouldn't respond like that. 
So when circumstances come that are not going in your favor, your flesh is going to dominate immediately. And as soon as you notice that the flesh is responding, the spirit goes boop, and it's just like this, it's like this magnetic switch that flips, that turns off the ability for that to make any difference in your life. And something else can take control. Flesh is always going to be the first thing to bark at every issue of life. Joy is driving that first thought into the mind of Christ. That's what we've got to learn to do. That's what joy really does. Joy takes that first thought and helps you to think again. Joy sees that the problem with the situation and immediately drives it to the hope of Jesus Christ. And when you're able to do that, it produces this, this joy that begins to change everything, begins to flush the mind, begins to flush the body. Joy is the experience of... It doesn't wear itself on its face all the time. But joy is this deep knowledge that God is in complete control and He is working and that every circumstance of life is helping me to be more like Jesus. If, in fact, I'll say this. If you cannot drive your thought to hope, sin is the reason that it's blocked. Sin is always the reason that it's blocked, whatever it may be. There's probably a million different things. But a lack of joy is a choice, and it's sin. Joy comes from the hope that while lives change, some things never change. God's faithfulness, God's watchfulness, God's work, God's provision, God's protection, God's mercy, God's grace, God's forgiveness, God's ability to work all things to the good, God's love, Jesus' advocacy for me, Jesus' mediation for me, my place in heaven, on and on we could go over and over. But this is where we place our thoughts, on the circumstances that can change, on those things that never do. See, your emotions can be controlled by your mind. So your mind needs to be controlled by the Word of God. And that's how your emotions are going to respond. So if they have true responses to the reality that's the most important, that's always going to be the spiritual reality. So I say to us, rejoice. And again I say, rejoice. You know, in Isaiah chapter 53, the Bible says that, you know, Isaiah says that calls Jesus the coming Messiah, the man of sorrows who's borne our grief, carried our sorrow. In his mission, he entered into our flesh and blood but he also entered into our sorrow and into our frustrations and into our fears and into our anxieties. And Isaiah calls him a man of sorrows, but the New Testament never does. The New Testament says, but for the joy set before him, headed to the cross. 
You think about Isaiah chapter 50, verse 6. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Over and over, you see this, these terrible prophecies about terrible things that are going to happen to Jesus. But when Jesus arises, all he talks about is full joy. He talks about being in the presence of the Father. He talks about speaking on behalf of the Father. Over and over, Jesus talks about his joy and his rejoicing, even in the midst of, of extreme, extreme difficulty. In fact, I'm going to read uh, Proverbs 8.30. It says, Then I was beside him. He's talking about the Messiah next to the Father. Like a master workman, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world and delighting in the children of men. Jesus' pre-incarnate disposition wasn't man of sorrows. It was infinitely joyful. And when Jesus was born, it was joy to the world. And everything that Jesus did was to produce joy. Psalm 21, 6, you make him blessed forever. You make him glad with the joy of your presence. Think about all the times that, that Jesus put himself in the parables that he told. Think about the, the man who bought a piece of property, went out and dug it up. Jesus talked about he's filled with joy. Talked about the widow who'd lost her coin. She finally found it, filled with joy. I mean, over and over, Jesus talking about, you know, putting himself in these positions where rescuing people filled him with joy, not a man of sorrows. He, he, he was able to identify with the presence of the Father, not the presence of his struggling. So he is our ultimate example in this. It's easy to see Jesus and all the things he went through and see him hanging his head on the cross. But Jesus was filled with joy even in the midst of the cross. So come what may. I know you have plans. I know you can see your, the future that you hope for yourself. But I hope that when God's call comes upon your life that you can say, may it be according to your word. Because if you can't say that, then you will never be able to say, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. You're never more like Jesus than when you're rejoicing. And you're never less like him than when you're grumbling and complaining and focused on your circumstance. Lord, we just love you this morning and we thank you for your example to us. So much more could be said about your example and how to live in joy. How to live in joy through extreme darkness. And as we have talked about you know, joy to the world, and we've talked about, you know, the good news that comes and the peace that comes. And you bring all of those things, no doubt, but not without our work, not without our, our ascent into that. So many times we render the work of the Holy Spirit ineffective in our life because we're focused on the here and now instead of thereafter. So, Lord, I, I, I know. That, that joy is a fruit that you produce in us 
but I know that it's a choice that we need to make to live in it, to use it, to exercise it, to display it. I know that it, it presents itself as, as action. And I know that it can become a habit. So in that, in that first moment of frustration, I pray we would drive that frustration into the hope of your will and your work and your word. And I pray that we would see that what you are doing is so much better than what we do. And when things work out good, we rejoice. And when things work out bad, we grumble. But Lord, sometimes good things do not produce godliness. Sometimes bad things do. So I pray that whether it's good or whether it's bad, we will just be joyful. Because we know that you're sovereign and we know that you're at work and we know that all things work together for good to them that love you and are called according to your purpose. And so I just ask, Lord, that as we experience those difficulties, that your people, that the joy in our heart be the testimony to the world around us that's still living in darkness. And I pray that as they see your joy in us being our strength, I pray that they would see your light. They would walk in that light. But Lord, if your own people aren't walking in it, what kind of testimony do we have? So maybe we be identified with whose presence we spend time in. pretty much what Jesus said throughout all of his teaching. So we identify most by who we allow to influence us. It's a private prayer, private time with you, fully devoted to your will and to your way. May we drive frustrations. May we drive them through the cross of Jesus Christ and find joy there as you're making us more and more like him. In his name we pray, amen. Will you stand with me, please? It's a little odd of a message. It's a difficult one to respond to. do want us, each one of us to make a commitment. I want, us to, I want us to put fake smiles away, platitudes away. I would like for us to truly make a commitment this morning that come what may, you know, there's, a, there's a life that I'm expecting and then all of a sudden an angel comes and gives you life-changing information that in a, in a moment's confirmation that we'd be able to say, may it be according to your word. May it be according to God's will. And whatever it is, I know that God's gonna protect and God's gonna provide and God's gonna do what brings him the most glory and that's why I'm alive. So whatever happens, the Lord is glorified. That's hard.
Boy, it's easy to say that on a stage. It's another thing to live that in day in and day out. And there's going to be a lot of tribulation. There's going to be a lot of trouble that comes in our lives because those are the things that help us to be more like Jesus. So prepare for that. In this world, you will have trouble. But in this world, you will have opportunities to demonstrate Christ-likeness. Choose Christ. Choose joy. And it'll become a habit. So this morning, I want you just to pray. And if you can, I want you to pray that God would at least, in that moment, give the... and Just pray that in that moment of temptation, of grumbling, complaining, and demanding your way, that the Holy Spirit will give you a quick, a real quick nudge to drive that to joy, to see that God is doing something so much bigger than your plan. If you could pray that, I invite you to as I pray. Lord, I just ask that as we come to the end of this time together, I pray that you would help us to to recognize that when we surrender our life to you, we don't just say yes to a kingdom that is coming. We say yes to a kingdom that has come, that is manifested by the fruit that it bears of love and of joy and of peace and patience, kindness and goodness and gentleness, self-control. And so, Lord, I pray that as we live in that kingdom economy, I pray that joy would give birth in our lives. And I pray that the fruit of that joy would be the ability to love, the the ability to to extend, the ability to be generous, the ability to forgive, the ability to let down our own pride and our own arrogance and our own way and just to be able to trust what you're doing. Lord, I pray that we wouldn't fight against you find joy in just saying yes and I pray that our lives would be holy and I pray that our lives would be pure so at least that the frustration the difficult part of joy would be because you're choosing it not because we're having to to deal with unnecessary obstacles because of our own sin I just pray that you'd have a work, do a work among us this morning. Purify us of our hard heart of this. Lord of me, I pray for me. I pray that you would soften my own heart. I pray that you would purify it. I pray that you'd give us peace where there's anxiety. I pray that you would give us joy where there is frustration. And I pray that you would produce that fruit through us. Jesus' name I pray. Amen. If you need help finding or taking your next step, send us a message at hello at myconnectchurch.cc.